Hey everybody, I'm live. It worked. Welcome to Open Space for Monday, January 27th, 2020. Um, so before we get into all of the chat and all of that today, um, oh, apparently uh, Nightbot. Nightbot isn't working again, so I'll try and fix that. Um, uh, so before we get into what's going on today, uh, just to let you know some upcoming stuff, we've got a new episode coming tomorrow, uh, which we're going to be, it's going to go to the patrons a little later than we were hoping. So um, it should be going out uh, tonight to the patrons. It's all about shadow ecosystem which is a really cool idea. And I've been thinking about this quite a lot. And we're, we're doing a bit of a different experiment today, um, which is that we're going to, uh, or with, the, with this next episode, sorry, I'm like working on five different things all at the same time. Um, so the plan is that we're going to, uh, at the beginning of the episode, I've got a little ramble. So it's about like just about a minute because in doing more episodes, and you can see now all the Guide to Space episodes are just my uh, my voice, and then we've got a whole bunch of really cool graphics over top of it, and and that's great. It allows me to like quickly write an episode, record the audio, give it to Chad. Chad puts it together, and then we were able to to put the episode out the door. But it's kind of lost the connection to 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 me, right? And so like the people who who showed up the 400,000 people who showed up on the Betelgeuse episode don't have any real connection to the channel and the other stuff that we do here and all of that. And so I wanted to kind of bring that. And it used to be I would just be in front of the camera and, and do the spiel and then and then we would do the video. And so with this more streamlined version, it's kind of lost a little bit of its humanity. So so I for the next three episodes, I've recorded a just a one-minute like director's note, writer's note, Fraser's note at the beginning of the episode about how the, you know, sort of what led to me picking this episode and what I think is kind of really cool about the idea. And then we go into the actual episode and, and we'll see, uh, you know, that's very quick for me to do while I'm doing the QA part portion. So the next three episodes are going to have this running as an experiment. So let me know what you think. Um, like I said, it's sort of just, it just kind of feels like, like it's just another generic narrator going on. And, and that's not the sense that I want to give people in watching the episodes. Um, I showed you last week, the new pictures from the telescope did a star party with Skylius, um, uh, Thursday, Wednesday, I forget now, Wednesday, I think. And we took a bunch of more great pictures. So we're really cranking with the, with the new telescope. I am pretty excited about it. So, First step is make the telescope go, <laughs> practice out some of these star party things, and then I'm going to try to bring, invite guests, probably do them Sunday nights when we have dark skies, because that's when we used to do the star parties, and try to bring back some of the old friends and try to build it up. But but again, with this, this bedrock of really cool telescopes that are always available, so we'll always have amazing pictures to share. <laughs> so, uh, we were going to have a guest. It was going to be, um, Phil Metzger who comes from the university of Florida and, uh, one of my favorite people to follow online. Uh, he, he works on, on all kinds of projects, um, working on lunar, uh, simulant to help figure out how rovers are going to work on the, on the moon. He was one of the people who helped develop the steam powered, uh, rocket, uh, like space engine. Um, so he was going to be coming today, but then some stuff sort of made his schedule busy. So he's going to be back at near the end of February, but we've got a bunch of episodes with guests lined up, but then free form, just me also. So let me know what you think, what you want. As always, this is just, this is all about you. All right, so uh, let's get cranking and let's get into uh, this week's question show. And again, I have no idea what this is going to be about. This is all up to you. If the topics are boring, that's it's not my fault. Um, 
So Tim Smith asks, um, any news on the Starlink launch tomorrow? Um, no news. It was supposed to launch Sunday and then the weather was bad. And so they pushed it to today and now the weather is bad. And so they've pushed it to tomorrow. So that'll be, it should launch on Tuesday. And the thing with this is SpaceX isn't taking any chances. They, um, you know, the, uh, the, because it's their rocket and their satellites, they're going to wait, wait for, and there's no rush to get these satellites into space. They're just going to wait for the ideal conditions. But the thing that I, that's funny is like how weird this is to see these satellites going every two weeks. Like I know we were told that there were going to be satellite launches every two weeks. And I, and I, but I don't think we really appreciated it in some kind of, I don't know, some kind of emotional level, but you're like satellites launched and then you're sort of dealing with like, here's the cool pictures and all the videos and here's the, here's where they went. And then satellites launch, like, oh, there's more, you know? And so we're just like completely, um, overwhelmed by this. And I, it's funny, like, there's a whole industry of people who follow and, you know, like, uh, Tim Dodd, everyday astronaut, and there's a whole bunch of people that follow all of the stuff that's, that's happening with, with SpaceX, and they're covering every launch. But I wonder if we're going to get to this point where it's just like, it's just too much. It's just like, like, how do you it's like, it'd be like covering every commercial airliner that takes off and delivers supplies or people to some location, like it's just going to be just going to be crazy. So uh, I was talking about upcoming episodes. I totally forgot. So, so the, the shadow ecosystem is the one that's going to be happening tomorrow. And people asked me for a, to do premieres. So I, I did a couple of premieres last week, but I did them last minute. I did them. I gave you like an hour of notice and people really enjoyed it. Cause I was in there in the chat and I was chatting with everybody and, and answering more questions about the episode. And I really liked the process because it catches any mistakes that I might make. And then I can fix, we can fix the mistake, pull the episode down, re-render it, put another one up and, and, and not have to, you know, even if anything was even slightly confusing. So I think that's, it's a great process. So, so we will give you more notice. So, um, tomorrow it's going to be the episode on the shadow biosphere. Friday's episode is going to be about the supernova 2006 GY that looks like it was a white dwarf spiraling into a red giant, which is just awesome. And then next Tuesday's episode is about the uh, abort systems, uh, such as the pad abort system, in-flight abort system, and even some weird ideas for how to retrieve a, an astronaut if their spaceship is broken and they need to return through uh, to land you know, through the atmosphere. So, uh, so anyway, we're going to, I'm going to try and give more notice so that you've got like 24 hours of notice on these premieres. So you know, if you want to show up for them at the same time, though, last time I tried to do a premiere and gave a 24 hour notice, a lot of people complained. Like they just hated this idea of a premiere. They want to watch the video right now. They don't want to know that a video is going to happen in the future. And I was originally kind of, uh, I don't know, I understood that and I sort of backed away from the idea, but then with the premieres that we had last week, everybody had so much fun. So I think that, I think that if you want to show up and hang out with us while, while we watch the show, you can. And if you don't want to also cool, just wait 20 extra minutes and then you can watch it. So, all right. Uh, so let's get on to, uh, more questions. Dragon King. If we did encounter aliens, do you think they would be friendly? Um, it's a tough question. Um, there's sort of two camps to this, right? So the one camp is that any civilization that is capable of harnessing the kinds of power and required to cross the gulfs from world to world should be very advanced and probably fairly emotionally stable, very, um, you know, uh, you know, not really warlike because it's like, how do you get that advanced and still be having war all the time. So the hope is, and there's not a lot of really good reasons to go to other star systems. You don't need the resources, right? You just, you're it's pretty much limitless in your own star system. You don't, you don't need to steal the water, right? Like the, 
there's you would go to another star system to to greet the inhabitants. Ideally, you would want to make friends with them, right? That you would want them to make friends with us. But there's another really good reason why you would want to go to other star systems and greet the inhabitants, and that would be, of course, to wipe them out. Because any inhabitant today, any pre-industrial civilization, any new uh, scientific civilization is a future competitor for the resources of the galaxy. And so some advanced civilization might say, okay, we want the entire Milky Way to ourselves. We don't want any competitors. So we are going to build a fleet of self-replicating robot probes. They're going to go from star system to star system. If they find a civilization at any stage, they're going to return it to the stone age. And that way, when we show up, you know, in the future, when we're fine, we finally get around to wanting to use those resources, there won't be any competitors. And that is another. And this is the idea of the Berserkers. I think it was uh, what Fred Saberhagen's books, The Berserkers. So there could be satellites here in the, the solar system waiting for us to demonstrate that we're an intelligent civilization. And then they'll get the signal and they will... Uh, they will return us to a non-competitive state. So we don't know, right? Obviously, we have no, um, we have no, we don't have enough information. There's just, there's just us. And from what we can tell, all we have seen so far that we are the only intelligent civilization that we have ever seen in the entire Milky Way, in the entire universe. So until we find some others, we won't know whether we are. Um, whether they're nice or whether they're mean. Um, but the reality is that any civilization that can cross the gulfs between stars, we are not a threat to them. <laughs> so they can do whatever they want. I hope they're nice. Will, will to duck 007, why do some planets spin in the opposite direction? So there's two, all of the planets in general spin in the, in the same direction. You know, the, the direction that the Earth turns when you look at it, that is the same direction that the Sun is turning, that Jupiter is turning, that Mars is turning, etc. Now, there's two notable examples. There is Venus, which is turning exactly backwards. And then there is Uranus, which is on its side and turning. And so how did this happen? And there's a couple of ideas. And right now, astronomers don't know for certain what actually caused it, right? The one possibility is that it was just that the planets migrated. And so as and so we know that, for example, in the early solar system, you had Jupiter, it was probably Jupiter, Saturn, uh, Neptune, and then Uranus. So if they're, they're sort of like the sizes as they go down. And that's what you would expect. And then the planets migrated around. Jupiter and Saturn kind of moved inward. Uranus and Neptune shifted outward. Neptune and Uranus shifted places. And in that process, it's possible that as Neptune and Uranus pass each other, Uranus rolled over. Uh, a similar situation might have happened in the inner solar system with Venus. It might have rolled over. Uh, but then there's some other ideas, which are, of course, things like big impacts, like what happened with um, to create the Earth's moon, maybe a planetoid crashed into Venus and rolled it over. Um, the other possibility is that, um, you know, maybe it was the lack of a large moon and just rolled it over, or maybe it engulfed its moon, right? It created a moon, but the moon wasn't up far enough to be able to fully orbit around for billions of years, and it just came colliding back into the planet, and that caused it to roll over. So. We don't really know. Um, we will find out uh, as more research is done. I mean, this is one of the big reasons why we really need to go back to both of them. We need to go back to Venus and we need to go back to, to Uranus and Neptune and to study them better. And right now, there's, there's no hard plans to go back to the outer gas giant, the, out, the outer ice giants, which sucks. Be awesome. Uh, Veggie T 2009, what do you think of the XKCD reimagining of the solar system? I thought it was funny. And in fact, so speaking of, of people who had it, uh, a hot take on that, so Phil Metzger, the person who I said it was going to be my guest, he had a really in-depth breakdown of everything that would happen in the, in this reimagining from XKCD, all of the things that would go wrong, um, in the solar system, even things that we, we kind of do enjoy. So even though some of them would be pretty cool, um, some of them would be, uh, pretty bad. So definitely, um, I apologize. I hope somebody can put a link 
into the into the show notes. You know, it's a it's a big long multi tweet thread that that Phil Metzger put on there. Um, let's see. Zachary Handy, what do you think of the AIN from Subnautica Below Zero? I haven't played Subnautica Below Zero. I played Subnautica and I really enjoyed it, but I haven't played the sequel. Um, so I and I knew I should. So I'm sorry. Orlando Saint Sebastian, what would be the effect of two orbiting pulsars and each intermittently hitting each other with its energy beam? I have no idea. I mean, you know, that sounds like a question for an astrophysicist and not me. So, you know, I can't think of a piece of research where that happened, but it's just light, Like It's just they're hitting each other with their radio waves. So I can't imagine it would cause that much of an impact. We know that pulsars do spiral into each other because of, you know, they're losing energy because they're emanating gravitational waves. And those aren't very strong. So I... I, I can't imagine they would actually change their orbital characteristics from the pulsars zapping each other with their with their radio beams every, every few milliseconds. It would be super weird. I mean, I guess however long it takes them to orbit around each other and hit each other with their beams. Oh, it's a good question. It's a good question. I will. That's the kind of thing that I will have to bring in an expert to be able to... Um, to help answer that question. But but just sort of from my rudimentary thinking of the process, it doesn't seem like it would be that big of a, of a scale. Let's see. Uh, Zapfan, Zapfan, uh, is there anything in the core, in Betelgeuse's core, that could trigger a gravitational wave without it blowing up, like switch from the fusion of neon to silicon or something? Not that I'm aware of. This is, of course, the story that the LIGO-Virgo Observatory detected a gravitational wave in the region of Betelgeuse uh, about a week ago. And I had a bunch of people email me and say, is this real? Did this really happen? And I know Anton did a wildly successful video. I clearly picked the wrong topic that week because Anton, from what to math, uh, just he just crushed it with the with the video that he did on it. I haven't watched it, but I saw the number of people who watched it. Um, and yeah, so this happened. Um, there definitely were gravitational waves that came from the region of Betelgeuse, but it's most likely a coincidence. The resolution of LIGO and Virgo isn't good enough to know exactly where the gravitational wave came from, but it did come from a region that is, you know, say within 10 times the distance of the moon nearby Betelgeuse. So it's actually a fairly small chunk of the sky, but coincidences happen. If Betelgeuse did explode, I mean, there are gravitational waves that would be released by a supernova, by a core collapse supernova. And the current generation of gravitational wave observatories can't find them but future gravitational wave observatories will be able to find them they'll be able to find all kinds of crazy stuff so you know that the video that i did last week talking about the future of gravitational wave observatories i mentioned in that that one of them would be able to detect core collapse supernova so so and they would have the precision to know exactly where it's coming from like the future ones will know which star just generated a, a core collapse supernova and they will get that before the light comes, right? Which is incredible. Um, they'll get it, it'll go gravitational waves, then neutrinos, and then the light. And it's because the, the gravitational waves are released sort of instantly. The neutrinos happen when the core comes together and the black hole forms and the neutrinos, you know, 99% of a supernova is released in neutrinos and they can escape the the material around the core of the star while the light the radiation is blocked by all the solar material just all this material falling in and heating up and so the neutrinos and neutrinos don't move quite the speed of light they're just a fraction shorter than the speed of light but for the vast distances it's effectively the speed of light and so we would get the gravitational waves then we get the neutrinos and then the light like four hours later would show up one after the other. And so 
to be able to get that gravitational wave alert, astronomers can know where to turn their telescopes and then watch as the supernova happens. They could even, I guess, in theory, see what the star was as it was starting to come together. Anyway, I can't, I can't wait until these, this next round, but we need things like Lisa or the Cosmic Explorer. So stay tuned. Doug Ellis asks, does your deaf dog bark? And could the ISS leave orbit for a more exciting mission? Um, my deaf dog does bark quite a bit, actually. Um, should make her bark. Can you make her bark? I don't think we can. We can get her pretty zazzed up. But, I mean, it doesn't sound quite like a normal bark. It sounds a little different. I'll, I, at some point, I'll try and get her to do this on command in a future episode. Um, no, ISS can't leave the orbit of the Earth for a more interesting mission. It is not designed to go anywhere else. It is, um, it's built to be under the protection of the Earth's magnetosphere. So it just doesn't have any kind of radiation protection to be able to handle going anywhere else. So when it finishes its mission, it's going to reorbit the atmosphere and crash into the, you know, crash into the atmosphere and be deorbited into the Pacific Ocean, into the spacecraft graveyard pedal listen how small could a black hole be in theory um so the the smallest black hole that you can get naturally is going to be the stellar mass black holes and those are the ones that are formed when a star with like 10 plus times the mass of the sun explodes as a supernova maybe 20 um bigger bigger more massive than the sun a lot. And so if they're less massive, then, but you get a supernova, you get a neutron star as the remnant. And if they're more massive, then you get a black hole. And then they end up with several times the mass of the sun as the black hole. And that's like the smallest possible way you can get a black hole just naturally in the universe. And the exact size of that is still being figured out as more and more observations are being made. And of course, back to gravitational waves, when the gravitational wave observatories come in, we will know precisely how small the smallest uh, black holes are or how massive the least massive black holes are. But in theory, you could have black holes that were formed at the very beginning of the universe when the entire universe was in, in this incredibly compressed state. In theory, if there were over and under densities in any part of the Big Bang, then you would have essentially black holes form just instantaneously in the earliest moments of the universe. And these are known as primordial black holes and they could come in any mass. So there could be primordial black holes that are the mass of the earth or primordial black holes that are the mass of the sun or the mass of a chair. <laughs> and, and then they would just be out there in the universe today. And this has been thought one of the reasons why um, there could be uh, one of the explanations for dark matter, although not very many, many people hold to that. But what's cool about this idea is that these black holes, if, if Stephen Hawking is right, they would be evaporating like the larger black holes are expected to. And the smaller, the less massive a black hole is, the faster it's going to evaporate. And so in theory, you're going to get these tiny black holes and a certain number of them will have already evaporated in the age of the universe. And so if astronomers look out, they should see a minimum size, minimum mass of black hole that which is the smallest size to not have evaporated so far. And that would just that would just be the greatest, right? It would mean that yes, black holes were formed in the in during the Big Bang. These primordial black holes are out there. And Hawking is right that all of the, the least massive ones have already evaporated and what's left are the are the the bigger ones which it's a great idea so so stay tuned let's wait for those really amazing gravitational wave observatories because those will probably be the machines that will be required to find them um dr ed alcott are they going to deorbit the failing direct tv satellite so we did a story on that. I think it's a it's a geosynchronous orbit, right? So you can't you can't deorbit it. All they can do is move it to an orbit that's farther away from the rest of the satellite, so that if it does explode and cause debris, it's not going to cause any damage. I mean, they're like thirty five thousand kilometers away from the Earth, so they they don't deorbit. They just 
I mean, the geosynchronous satellites are effectively going to be in space forever. That's our space junk legacy to the universe. Uh, William Beckham, uh, have you seen The Edge of the Universe on Netflix? Interesting topic on radio astronomy in episode two. I have not. Um, I, I, I tend not to watch documentaries and YouTube videos on space and astronomy. Um, I mean, I used to love them as a child. I watched Cosmos and, and all kinds of stuff. But now, because it's my job, um, I don't want to be influenced by just how people are, what kinds of topics people are thinking about, what kinds of, um, like, just how they're structuring their arguments, anything. I just don't, I don't want to know. Um, and so I do feel bad because I'll see some really cool episode. Like I, I mentioned, uh, we did this episode on abort systems coming up in a, in next, next Tuesday. And I saw that Tim Dodd had from everyday astronaut had done an episode on whether or not Starship should have an abort system. And, and so I didn't know that he had done an episode on abort systems. And then I wrote the episode and I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to link to Tim's video. I haven't watched it. I assume it's good. Right. Um, everything he does is great, but, but I can't watch it because I don't want to be, I don't want to, I don't want to steal his ideas. I don't want to just, I don't want to know. And so I, and I've, it's even gotten to the point now where I just can't, I can't watch really anything space related that isn't just the direct source. Like I read journals, I read press releases, I talk to people, but I don't watch or I don't listen to any podcasts that are related to space. It's just like at a certain point, I just have to maintain a certain amount of, of just like a bubble <laughs> that I just stick to the, the, the sources and not try to watch anything else. Cause it does get into your head, you know, and I don't want to do that. So, um, <laughs> Rike Haida, wait, did I get this right? Does a black hole evaporate? Yeah, that's the theory. This is this is what Hawking radiation is, is this idea that black holes evaporate over time. And I mean, we've talked about this many times, but just do a search for black hole evaporation on YouTube and you'll see some great episodes. I highly recommend the one from PBS Space Time, which I did watch, um, mostly because um, he helps clear up a misconception about, about the way this works. So I did watch that. Uh, so definitely watch uh, the PBS Space Time episode on uh, black hole evaporation. Hopefully someone will put a link into the, uh, into the comments. Um, over on Twitch, Spaghetti Bowl says, how does something evaporate when all the matter can't escape? Radiation. Yeah, so same, same situation, right? Take a look. Black hole evaporation. Uh, you'll find some great videos that, that explain what's going on. Rafael Esperadio, does everything produce gravitational waves, but they're just too weak to be detected? Earth blocks interferes on them, so we can't detect them. Do we produce gra a gravitational wave with a clap? Yes, you do. I'm, I'm, I'm making gravitational waves right now. Um, and that, uh, and so everything, any mass moving in the universe creates gravitational waves. But the key is, is that you need the most massive, most dense objects in the universe to be able to even detect them at any kind of distance. But, but in theory, you are. Sebast1509, uh, how about Kurzgesagt? Yeah, Kurzgesagt, Kurzgesagt. Anyway, i got to practice saying that. Yeah, they did a video on black holes. Uh, it's possible that I wrote it. So <laughs> um, that's where my logo comes from. So check that out. Um, the, there, there's is, there's is, there's is good, um, but it falls into the same kind of misconception that I wrote <laughs> that the PBS space time one clears up. So I recommend the PBS space time one over the Kurzgesagt one, the, even though I wrote it, um, Samuel Baker, Hey Fraser, do you know if the James Webb space telescope will have the ability to confirm the existence of quark stars. So for people who don't know, quark stars are a theoretical intermediate stage between a neutron star and a black hole. So like give you an example, right? You have a, 
a, a, like a, a white dwarf. And a white dwarf can be pulling in material from some partner star. And when it gets to this magic 1.4 times the mass of the sun, the entire star undergoes a thermonuclear explosion. It essentially becomes the right mass and pressure and temperature to fuse carbon. And the whole thing's made of carbon, so the whole thing just explodes. Um, and so imagine this idea, you've got a neutron star, which is already sort of one level more compact than a white dwarf, but it's accreting material from some stellar neighbor. And could it get to some point where it's got enough material that it goes crunch one more time, but not enough, you know, maybe a point where there's some intermediate level, and this has been theorized. Could James Webb, James Webb isn't necessarily the best machine to be able to see this kind of thing, um, because you know, think about like what kind of it's going to be giving off potentially radiation similar to a neutron star, but it's going to be a little different and you will need to um, figure that out. Um, the the interesting idea to sort of detect these things is not it's not about infrared radiation, but it's about that phase shift, right, where you've got the, the neutron star crunching down to the quark star, maybe the quark star crunching down to a black hole. And so in theory, there should be some kind of burst of radiation when this happens. And that's been one idea for a fast radio burst that because they happen once many times, they're randomly located around the whole universe. They're obviously in galaxies that are super far away. Um, that could be a, a signal that's coming from quark stars forming, but uh, James Webb won't necessarily be the right tool to, to find it. You want either high energy stuff or just different ways of, of detecting it. <laughs> Nancy wants to know if I've watched Picard. Thoughts? Yeah, I watched the first episode of Picard and I thought it was fine. It was fine. It was too early to tell, right? It, it was, I mean, on the one hand, um, Patrick Stewart's in it. And so uh, I mentioned this in Astronomy Cast. It's like, you know, he's like the baby Yoda of the Mandalorian. Like, how can you not be overwhelmed by emotion watching Patrick Stewart be Jean-Luc Picard again? It's amazing. Uh, the actual story itself, yeah, you know, I, I don't know, too early to tell. I'll keep watching it for sure. I wasn't, you know, hating it, so... Arjon, do you think that other civilizations may be held back because they never created an economic system that boosts their technological development before they go extinct? Um, well, so, I mean, if other civilizations, if there are intelligent civilizations out there, we don't know. Another idea of, of sort of for why they may have never formed the ability to be an advanced civilization is, you know, could be like they, they're a marine environment and they're in a marine environment. And so they could never develop fire or wheels or things like that. It was all, you know, tool use. And so they could be incredibly intelligent, but they can't actually affect their environment beyond whatever they can do under the, under the water. So you can imagine all kinds of scenarios which would prevent, um, any one civilization from being able to develop further, but the universe is a big place. There are hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way. And so whatever happens, even if it's incredibly remote, will happen a bunch of times. And, and as we talked about in several episodes, right, wherever that civilization starts, they will settle the entire Milky Way within a couple of million years. So it doesn't matter where they start. And for every civilization that doesn't want to settle the entire Milky Way, there will be others that will. And they will be potentially, we talked about early beginning of the beginning of this episode, they will be looking to study and potentially snuff out their competition. So there could be all kinds of reasons why a civilization may fail to advance. I mean, why are we the ones with cars and houses and not the I don't know why did why did our ancestors get us to the state and not the octopuses, um, and and who knows? Suthin scientist, can you do a video on terraforming Ganymede? I, 
hasn't Isaac Arthur done that? He's covered like he's he's terraformed everything. Um, I I I can't imagine what value we would get from terraforming Ganymede. It's like really cold. It's really far away. Uh, you got a lot of water, but apart from that, I mean, it's a terrible place. I don't know. I mean, I want to study it scientifically, but I sure don't want to live there. I mean, Titan out by Saturn, it's got going for it's got an atmosphere, right? Ganymede doesn't have an atmosphere. So I don't know. It's, it just doesn't sound great. So I can't imagine any reason to um, for us to want to terraform and try to live on on places like that. I think we're going to build space stations. And it could very well be I mean, I love in the expanse, they've got a a space station or like a station on Ganymede because it's like this gateway to the outer solar system, a place where people can go and and collect resources and then move into and out of the, the solar system. But I can't imagine trying to turn that into a livable place. That said, when the sun does die and turn into a red giant, there will be this time when Ganymede is like at the perfect distance and the whole place melts and it becomes a warm water world uh, orbiting around Jupiter, which is which is kind of a crazy idea. So so stay tuned and the solar system will terraform it for you. Um, um, oh, someone's asking me to mention the topic of Phil Metzger's tweet again. Yeah, so Phil Metzger was talking about this reimagined solar system from XKCD, and he was explaining, going through in detail the the solar system impact of each of the suggestions from Randall Monroe. So that's the episode. No, that, that's, it was, sorry, that's the, the tweet storm. It was like 15 tweets all linked together, each one sort of handling a different uh, issue. Sean Martin is noting RIP Gus Grissom, Ed White, Roger Chaffee, 12767. Yeah, we have, we have entered the sad time of of space exploration. We have the, the Apollo one disaster happened on this day in 1967. We have the upcoming, uh, the Challenger and Columbia accidents all happened in roughly the same time. So, so you sort of have this one, two, three punch every year. And I, I, I got this working on this upcoming episode about abort systems. I was, I was writing about abort systems for the space shuttle and for the crew dragon and that. And so you, you have to go through the fact that, that the shuttle astronauts died because they didn't have a, a in air abort system, right. Or, or a flight abort system. They, once the shuttle lifts off the pad and if there's anything wrong with the orbiter itself, there was no way to save the astronauts and the the truth like people sort of see the the explosion of the challenger and they see the the big you know the 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 twin solid rocket boosters take off and they see the explosion of the of the main tank and they think well you know that was that's awful and they died but the reality is that the orbiter was you know the the main tank sort of collapsed on itself and tore away from the orbiter and the orbiter kept going and then the wings and the tail came off the orbiter and then it it broke up more it broke up and crashed into the ocean it's a it's it's really hard to think about and as we sort of move into this next phase of of space exploration and you think about what the risks that people are going to be taking. It's like, don't forget how many people died and how dangerous this is. And I'm really glad. I mean, I loved the space shuttle. I loved how it looked, how it worked. Um, but I, but I am really grateful that we're kind of going back to this simpler, safer, more resilient launch system, like what's happening with crew dragon. Right. Um, if it's on the pad and there's a problem, the thing pops away and everybody's safe. If it gets into the air and there's a problem, the thing pops away and everybody's safe. So you really have abort options every way up to docking with the International Space Station. And then the Crew Dragon is the abort system for the, for the International Space Station. So, so I think this is the right way to, to move forward with just getting humans into space. And if and when Starship 
flies, it won't have an abort system. And so is that a step back? Are we going to see some some terrible um, accidents? I mean, almost certainly, right? I mean, we see airliner accidents. So anyway, um, as you go through these next couple of weeks, it's, it all brings it back to the surface. And, you know, I was, I wasn't there for the Apollo one fire, but I was there for the, I was there for challenger as a kid, you know, I was always say I was delivering papers and all the newspapers had, you know, the newspaper had the challenger explosion on it. And that's how I found out about it was I went to school, came home, did my paper route. And it was just like challenger, challenger, challenger. But with the with the loss of Columbia, I was I was reporting it. I was I woke up and this was the news, and I had to spend my whole day, sort of following it step by step and reporting it, and for then for weeks after that. And it's a it's terrible. So anyway, I hope all of you uh, going through this kind of remember and and have sort of warm thoughts in your in your mind for all the lives that were lost in in exploring space, it's still incredibly dangerous not to be taken lightly, the forces, the energies involved, this is, this is still a very dangerous thing that people are approaching, and we need to take it very seriously. Um, Liquid Flame says, didn't they have ejection seats in early designs of the shuttle or was them built with them or they took them out? I don't know if they ever had ejection seats, the, um, the there was so as part of this, you know what, I'm just going to wait, you're gonna have to watch the episode that we did on abort systems, which comes out a week today. So stay tuned, we, we cover some really interesting ideas, including like little mini capsules inside rockets that would pop out and keep an individual astronaut safe. Um, Rhino Throaten, where's the best place to go on an amateur astronomy photography vacation in North America? That's a great question. I love this. All right. Uh, so there's, there's like three things that you want to see, and they're all in different places. So um, you could probably get two of them together but definitely not one of them. So, so the three things that you'll want to see as, a, as an astronomy vacation is you're going to want to see the night sky. You want to see dark skies. And for that, you're going to want to be somewhere in the, in the Midwest, anywhere from, you know, like if you draw a line, like right through the middle of the United States to the West, probably down in, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, that area, the sky, you can get out into the desert and get access to really nice dark skies. And, and then, wherever you look, the sky is just going to be phenomenal. Um, the second thing you're going to want to be able to do is actually see the Northern lights. And that's, you're going to have to go to Northern Alaska or Northern Canada to be able to see that. And, and, but when you see the Northern lights, they're just absolutely stunning. It's amazing. There's nothing like it. Um, Iceland is, is good too, though. Iceland is a lot, the temperature is a lot more reasonable for how far North you are. So if you want to see the Northern lights, I do recommend Iceland. The, Third thing is you want to watch a rocket launch and that's easy to do. Like I, I go on about this, just how easy it is for people to just go to, you know, go to Florida, get, and now when rockets are launching like every two weeks, so you should be able to see a rocket launch almost any time. So get a hotel in Cocoa Beach, which is sort of the beach that faces, the nice beach that faces Cape Canaveral get a hotel room that faces the water and at the time of the launch sit on your hotel patio or down at the bar and watch a rocket launch and you'll see almost as good a view as we get to see when we're the media out at out at cape canaveral because they still keep us pretty far away from the rocket but but it is totally worth doing it you know you feel the the power of the rocket taking off the flames, the, the sounds, and just this idea that this is our connection to the entire universe. And you're watching us. It's like a, I don't know, it's like a lifeline. It's like a ladder that we are climbing rocket launch by rocket launch, and you get to be a part of it. And there's never a time that you're, that it's not exciting. So do that. Those three things. Uh, ben Kahlo is saying really great photography on Universe Today's Instagram recently. Yeah, um, we just crossed the 200,000 mark on Instagram. And 
for followers. And I think we've got to have featured maybe 1500 new 1500 astrophotographers on our Instagram channel, I essentially give the keys to, to our channel to a different astrophotographer every day and and they're doing great and then i feature one of those pictures in my newsletter every week so universetoday.com newsletter but if you're an astrophotographer and you want me to share your work just use the hashtag universe today and then at some point uh i will i will send you a message saying hey thanks for using the hashtag do you want to take over uh let me know and, and i send the instructions and then they do the takeover Everyone asks Sergio, Sergio best sci-fi books, recommendations. Tell me like I've made it mentioned a bunch of the books that I really love, but I would love to hear your all's recommendations in the chat. So why don't you, the people who are watching right now, go ahead and throw all of your, your book series recommendations there for Sergio. You know, I've, uh, um, I, so many books that I like, um, newer books, older books, but I would love to hear, and I've mentioned it a bunch of times, so I'd love to see what people recommend. So let me know. What is the Instagram account? It's universe today on Instagram. So let me see, can I share it? I'll just show you my phone. That's how this works. And then for the people listening to the podcast, you know, so you can see these, are the, so pretty much each line is a different photographer, right? So every day, just a different astrophotographer sharing their work. And so it's deep sky stuff, it's Milky Way stuff, it's, um, uh, it's Aurora stuff, it's space flight stuff. And, you know, I, I, I kind of, you know, I'm the, editor I'm the moderator of it and so it's great because I get a chance to just see all this different work and sometimes I, I share just artists I love it Chris Colvin Event Horizon just sent me here um hey Event Horizon John Michael Godier and friends um are there any major events that you're hoping for or looking forward to for the northern hemisphere in 2020 fingers crossed for another Oumuamua or Borisov. Yeah. Um, so in 2020, the, the big event that I'm most looking forward to is the, um, there's going to be a conjunction between Saturn and Jupiter happening near the end of the year. I forget the exact date in November. Um, and so they're going to be so close in the sky that you will be able to see them in the same field of view in a telescope which is just mind bending. So you'll look, point your telescope at what looks like Jupiter and there will be Saturn and Jupiter in the same field of view and the moons, it'll be incredible. So that is going to be just epic. Hands down best event of the year by like a factor of 10. So stay tuned. Astro B asks, where do I give notice of my OPT telescope sessions? Uh, I don't give any notice. <laughs> um, and there's a couple of reasons. So partly it's because even with this incredible observatory at my disposal, um, the, the skies can be really problematic. And so last night I was going to fire up the telescope, but then the wind speeds were too high. So I couldn't. And so once I've done, like, I'm still figuring out how to just make it go technically, like, how do I get the images coming from the telescope and then share those out onto the internet? And so if you watch the thing that I did with Skylius, we're kind of there, I think, but how do I bring in some more guests? Then how do I bring in other telescopes? And how do I bring in additional sort of material to help us understand what it is that we're looking at, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, I have in my mind how I want this to look. But I also know that the only way to do this is just thrash around in public <laughs> trying to make this go until I feel like it's smoother. And then after I've done, I don't know, 50 of them, then I'll feel like it's figured out. So um, I think that is uh, so for now, if you follow Twitch, if you if you follow me on Twitch, Twitch, 
uh, .tv slash fcane, then you should get a notification when I have gone live. You should, should show up by email or notification on your phone or whatever. Um, I'm then when I feel like I'm like I'm not completely embarrassing myself, then I'll be doing them here on my YouTube channel. I'll probably pick a day. like we used to do the star parties every Sunday night. So I'll probably do them again on on Sunday nights. And then um, and probably around new moon. So we'll probably do them, you know, twice a month around then. And but but then Twitch, I'll be doing them all the time, right? Just whenever I have some new experiment that I want to test out. So so for now, you've just got to let YouTube and Twitch let you know when this is actually happening. Um, Danny the GFP on Twitch, if you could spend an hour looking into the night sky from Earth at any time in Earth's history, what year would you pick and why? So I don't know the year but I know the kinds of events that I would want to see, right? I would want to see a supernova. Like there have been stars as bright as Betelgeuse explode closer than Betelgeuse. Wouldn't it be cool to see one go off 50 light years away, 60 light years away, you know, where it's safe, right? So that would be cool. Um, I would like to see a bright comet. So we did an episode about about panspermia, about galactic panspermia, that that comets could be carrying material out from Earth's atmosphere out to other solar systems. So, so imagine a comet that gets so close to the Earth that it scrapes through the atmosphere and then heads back out to space. Can you imagine that, right? Watching that happen from the ground, that would be that would just be madness. It'd be amazing. So that would be incredible. So talk about seeing a bright naked eye comet. Um, uh, eclipses would be great. So I, you know, there are events like really incredible events that I would love to to be able to see as long as they're safe. So I don't know when they happened, but they do happen. Astro B asks, uh, will you do a Messier marathon. Yeah, I would love to do a Messier marathon. That's definitely been in the list is I want to do a Messier marathon at some point where we um, will try to hit all the Messier objects over the course of a night and and give you some perspective on each one of them as we go. Um, Neil Yu, what kind of propulsion could the Tic Tac drone UFO have used? No hot thrust and can Fraser interview the Navy wing commander pilot soon, please. I probably won't interview the Navy pilot. Uh, I mean, obviously if someone wants to set up the interview, I can, I can definitely talk to him. Um, who knows, right? Like we don't know. It's called an unidentified flying object. So we, so there, I could ramble, ramble off probably 20 alternative explanations for it was an alien spaceship for what people saw and experts in this field could probably rattle off a hundred different explanations that could possibly explain, including aliens, time travelers, you know, magic angels, right? <laughs> um, flying unicorns, but also things like, uh, problems with the sensors, problem with the radar, problems, you know, just mistakes, uh, uh, infrared, uh, was it uh, like an infrared reflection seen on a screen, all kinds of things, right? So, or advanced aircraft developed by another state like Chinese or the Russians, who knows, or a, another branch of the U S military testing out a, a vehicle that the air force was unfamiliar with and is so classified that no one will even tell them what it was, who knows. And unfortunately, until you can actually go and interrogate the, the evidence until you can go and, and follow that thing up and take a look at it up close. It just has to remain in the unidentified. So we don't even have enough information. Yeah. Glitch in the matrix. Nifty says, yeah, exactly. Right. A break in the simulation. Who knows? But until we can gain more evidence, it just has to be unidentified and don't 
drive yourself crazy trying to think about what it was. It's just unidentified. You, it's it right there in the U of the F and the O. James T, how can we confirm the Oort cloud exists? So the Oort cloud is this theoretical cloud that surrounds the entire solar system and contains these small icy objects, kind of like the Kuiper belt, but farther out. As far as like two light years away, you've got this cloud of ice that surrounds the, the, the solar system. How do we know it's there? Well, we can't observe it directly, but we see comets. And so every now and then a long period comet comes into the out into the inner solar system makes a zip around the sun and flies back out and sometimes they crash into the sun. And they're, they're brand like they're, they're pristine, they've never been into the inner solar system ever before. And based on the trajectory that the thing is following, if you can you look at the trajectory that the comet is is coming on, and that allows you to calculate where it started, where you know, what is its um, uh, you know, what is its closest point to the sun and what's its farthest point to the sun, its uh, aphelion and its perihelion. And that allows you to figure out that it had to come, you know, one came from over here, and then one came from over there, and then one came from over there. And so they all had to have come from some region that is really far away. And so that's how astronomers think that the Oort cloud is there. Um, from Nancy, um, is there a scope proposed scope that would be able to directly image or confirm the Oort cloud? The problem is that even if you're out in the Oort cloud, you the objects are still incredibly far apart, and there's not a lot of light out there. So it would be very difficult to actually observe an image an object that's out in the Oort cloud. But there have been some missions proposed. Uh, one example, we did an episode on these uh, ideas of an electric drive, uh, electric sail. And one of the things that it could do is take you out into the Oort cloud fairly rapidly to be able to try and observe them, but it would be really tough. Like you would want like to send a Hubble space telescope out to the Oort cloud to find Oort cloud objects it's a, and then use those as potential future flybys. Like it would be really tricky to, to be able to do that. Eric one asks, do we su suspect that other systems have Oort clouds as well? Yeah, I mean, the assumption is that, that the solar system is pretty normal. Uh, we have seen cometary clouds around other solar systems more like Kuiper belts. And so the theory that you know, if we see these this ice, these icy objects in other star systems, the expectation is that they're going to have Oort clouds as well that the mechanisms that led to creating the, the various features in the solar system are present in some number of star systems out there across the Milky Way. Um, all right, Janos Anja Raylips, wouldn't water used as a radiation shield become radioactive and therefore toxic to astronauts? So this is a question that's been asked quite a bit, like we've talked about how astronauts can use water to protect themselves from radiation. And so the question is like, won't the water become radioactive? And the answer is no. Um, imagine water, the water is like, it's like stopping bullets. And so you've got these particles that are that are the cosmic rays are passing so quickly, and they will smash up your DNA if they hit you. But when they hit the water, they they hit the water and then they slow down and then they're just one little atom across all of the, the water. And so it's not like they are ionizing radiation. They are just very damaging particles. The water stops them. You know, it's just like water wouldn't be poisonous, wouldn't, wouldn't give you a gunshot wound uh, after it was bullets were shot into it. So no, you can still drink the water. No problem. I know that analogy kind of falls apart. So all right, so we've reached the uh, the end of our hour. Uh, where does the time go? Um, so thank you everyone for hanging out with me today. Uh, I will probably have a guest next week. I'm not exactly sure, um, but I will uh, I will let you know what uh, as things go. But if not, then there'll be another just open 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 space uh, this week again tomorrow. I'll do a premiere. We will watch the new episode of the Guide to Space starting tomorrow at noon Pacific but the patrons will get it early, of course, uh, and then later on this week. So this tomorrow is the shadow biosphere. And then on Friday, we've got 
um, Supernova 2006 GY, and then uh, next Tuesday it's going to be Abort Systems. And then beyond that, I have no idea. So um, thanks, everybody, for watching. Thanks to the patrons. Thanks to the moderators. Thanks to Nightbot. And thanks to everybody who suggested all of their books. This is awesome. So many good books in there. And there's a bunch that I've read that I really liked, but I hope um, uh, any of you who were wondering what sci-fi books to read, I, uh, many of these I highly recommend. So, uh, all right. Well, thanks, everybody. This was super fun, and I will see you all next week.